0: Welcome to Talking Sock. Drew Wilson has brought to life some of puppetry's greatest heroes, with roles as Joey and Topthorn in Warhorse, to the title role in Dead Puppet Society's Laserbeak Man. To play a superhero is the best. Joining me by correspondence from Enmore in Sydney. This actor, writer and puppeteer teaches us to trust our inner weirdo and realise there is a hero in us all.
1: Everybody has something within them that is unique and worth
0: people paying attention to. Join Drew and I now here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry, arts, and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson, and today I am joined from Enmore in Sydney, New South Wales, by the wonderful puppeteer, Drew Wilson. Welcome, Drew, and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be here. Drew, why puppets? Ah, uh, Yeah, I watched,
1: well, I was listening to your one of your podcasts today, and I was thinking about this question, and I knew this question was coming up. Why puppets? I mean, there is an absolute joy in using puppets, so they do satisfy that part of performing. I love puppets. Why puppets? I didn't choose puppets. Puppets chose me. I suppose you must hear that a lot, but it's true. I trained as an actor and I have dabbled with puppetry every now and then, but never really took it seriously as a, as a platform to do Art and to, to be in front of an audience I got cast in a show that they trained me in puppetry And I've fallen in love with it And I, I've used it as much as possible ever since
0: You got cast in a show Let's just the, the show You got cast in Warhorse You got cast not only in Warhorse But you were Joey and Topthorn in Warhorse In the 2013, yes. 2012
1: Yeah, yeah So we opened on midnight On New Year's Eve 2012 Down in Melbourne That was our opening night and yeah, then we had a seven-month season that went from Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. So it was a midnight showing of War Horse Australia.
1: Uh, well, it was, it was no, it was a, like a 7.30 showing, but okay. we did the show, we performed it and had our interval and everything and they did like the cast announcement and then the fireworks happened for midnight. So it was all thrown together in one big uh, New Year's Eve party. It was like performing a show. Open a house, open a show to 2,000 people and then go and
0: celebrate that with all your friends that you've been spending three months training with. I feel like that's just like Drew Wilson getting, you know, admitted to puppetry, fireworks and fanfare and here we are, (laughs) you've arrived. That is such a cool origin story. Hey, wow. So I first met you briefly at a workshop with Dead Puppet Society down here in Melbourne. It was just before I saw you perform as Mr. Proud in Stormboy at MTC. The reason I want to bring this up is because it was such a beautiful Australian story, translated really brilliantly for the stage with Dead Puppet Society's beautiful signature puppets, which are laser-cut wooden puppets that were on a trigger and a large sort of beam. And my favourite moment was actually the saddest moment in the story, where the leading pelican, Mr. Percival, dies. And there's this beautiful moment when the puppet is left behind by the puppeteer, and the puppeteer breaks character just for a moment to personally stroke Stormboy's face before leaving the stage. And I think the reason I just died when I saw this was because we realised that in that moment, the puppeteer is literally the soul of the, that puppet. And I want to hear your reflections on working on a show like that. You know, one that is a drama, as a, because a lot of puppetry is comedy, but this is a drama. This is a really dramatic beautiful story. Can you tell me about that experience and and where you were in that time of of your puppetry journey?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head, the idea that the the puppeteer is the soul of the puppet. The the joy of that show was having permission to be an absolute idiot on stage. Pelicans are, they're (laughs) hilarious. They're absolute, like they're, these pelicans in particular, the way it's written, they're obnoxious creatures that just all of their motivations come around. When are they going to eat next? It was like, they just cause chaos on stage. We had a blast, absolute blast coming up with the the messiness and the silliness and the noises of those pelicans. It was a lot of ourselves and our clowning thrown into those puppets. So I think that when it comes to the soul of the puppet that you're you're identifying with, a lot of that was, yeah, we got full permission to lean into that. And coupled with, I mean, the beautiful story, it's a really interesting dynamic that while the story was so serious, but at the same time, so wholesome and about the family dynamic, it, it was a beautiful coupling with these crazy pelicans that lifted the story in another way. They were another element to themselves on stage. It was
0: utter joy. I'm just thinking about what Kayla Cabanis, who I know is a friend of yours and I know who also worked on Warhorse, said about you know, these incredibly physical tasks of lifting a horse and making the horse move. I think about the the Pelican and Storm Boy, they were heavy, man. And there's, you know, a number they of were. really quite intense physical labor that goes into the puppetry work. So what kind of, you know, physicality does a puppeteer need to be in order to actually do a dead puppet show?
1: Yeah, those puppets were heavy. There is an element of strength that is needed to manipulate some puppets. There are some puppets that are really tiny and light. There's an incredible amount of dexterity that you can use in order to create nuance within that puppet. And then you get other puppets that you have to find that dexterity but couple it with strength. Those pelicans in particular, they had an incredible amount of force that was needed to make the wings open, for instance, which means there is a lot of, a lot of effort, a lot of strength required. There were three of us doing the pelicans and often the best combination we found for making the pelicans work were two people. So you could have one person working on just the wings and the other person working on the nuance of the head. To do both together was quite a feat. And whenever that did happen in the show, it was kept to a minimum, but often it was in small bursts. And those pelicans are only on stage for a short amount of time. And so we could put the effort into that, which was really good to do because you've got all these things going on. You do want to show off these puppets. You do want to give the audience what these puppets can do. So if they're too difficult to manipulate, the audience can't get the most out of them. So yeah, it is that coupling of the potential for the puppet
0: mixed with having the strength in order to do it. And in terms of dexterity, I mean I remember that there were scenes where Stormboy is literally playing catch with the pelican and throwing a ball into yeah. the mouth. Which you think about that, that's an incredible amount of dexterity with coupled with stress. Yeah, we
1: we rehearse wow. that a lot. That's almost it's almost like practice really. Part of that as well is working with what they call the fourth puppeteer. So often, if, if there's three people on a puppet, the fourth puppeteer is the person that interacts with the puppet to help sell the idea that the, the puppet is a uh, being on stage. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a cool thing. We, that was especially important in Warhorse with the relationship with Albert. But with Stormboy in particular, we had to practice a lot the throwing of the fish and the throwing of the tennis ball in order to get the pelican to catch those items because there's. A way you can set it up so that it makes it easier for us to do it. A lot can go wrong. And it's <laughs> quite quite amazing to, to drop the ball literally on stage while you've got a bunch of people watching. Fortunately, Definitely. I was never the one that needed to catch anything. So it it never really fell on my shoulders in order to... Do that magic trick. Yeah.
0: And you've <laughs> said previously that you are most comfortable with the Bonraku style of puppetry that is most often employed in dead puppet shows in its own manner. And you've done three shows with them now, I think, maybe four. So can you tell me what it is about Bonraku that you enjoy and what you've learned from it?
1: Bonraku is probably, well, I think the reason I enjoy it is because it's the only one that I've done. I haven't really done anything else um i, I was trained in bunraku that was with the warhorse training they trained us for that show that's kind of where my experience came from i really want to have a play with all of the different kinds of puppets i'm i'm pretty hungry i'm a bit of a sponge when it comes to experience when it comes to the art form i've never had any formal training so for me it's all been on the job and every job should i believe challenge you and teach you something. So I'm, I'm always open to, to trying more and more stuff. But Bunraku, I tend to be, that's what I've worked with. That's what I know the best. If you were to access formal training, where do you think you'd go? Oh, that's a big question. I'd have to leave Australia. When borders open, I can hopefully get over to London to do some work with the Curious School. I did recently get the a Mike Walsh fellowship, which helps fund that that trip. So that will help hopefully give me some overseas training uh, in the hope that I can bring that back to Australia and you know, enrich uh, the puppetry world here. Well, I mean, that's, that's the hope. That's the hope and dream, right? You come home and like everybody does puppetry and you've got a school and everyone's like, all these puppeteers all training together and it's hunky-dory and everyone has an absolute blast and we just watch puppet shows for the rest of our lives. But mm. um, the reality is it's going to be uh, many, many years until that happens, if ever. But yeah, probably, um, London is probably where I'm going to look. But I do want to look at what is going on 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 the continent in europe i'd love to go and have a look at the bunraku stuff that's going on in japan oh yes although the bunraku that i do is quite it's like a um a watered down version of it i know they take it very seriously over there and it's a there's a huge respect for the art form it would be a very different thing i mean in the traditional sense, it takes thirty years to master a Bunraku puppet. You spend ten years in each different position on the puppet, and I don't have that much time. I I want to do more performing. I can't wait. I would probably. I don't know what's on offer to go to Japan to go in and just do
0: like a a crash course. I don't know. Like I went to a, I went to Japan in 2018. And there is a touring company that does bonraku puppetry and does do workshops and the like, but it seems that they they only travel. When they're traveling, there is no real access to their workshops or education. And then last Mm -hmm. year when I met a Japanese puppeteer by the name of Nozomi Nagai, and she is beautiful, and she's been studying puppetry 15 years under the same master, and she's 35 and is still a student. And she created Mm -hmm. this beautiful puppet um, herself, hand-carved, called Onoko. And it, mm-hmm. it, it is, you know, a walkabout puppet that she attaches to herself. And I think oh, wow. that it is very much a culture of, you know, training from a master, finding that master, learning from that master as opposed to a formal puppetry school. But God, yeah. I'd love to go to Japan and do just puppets. You know, that would be unreal. Yeah. Hey. It would be incredible, right?
1: Oh, It's a culture and uh, interrogation of the art form that we don't have in Australia. It's... Yeah, I I find that fascinating. And I think there's so much to learn from how other people do it because we're free reign here in Australia. So much changes so quickly. And yeah, I feel like in a way we do have to fight a lot for any resources we can in order to move forward. So I feel like, yeah, it only makes sense that we go overseas to seek what we want and what we need because it's certainly... If you're not getting it where you are, then a lot of puppeteers, I know, are very creative, inspired people. They can't sit still for a long time. So it, if it's not being presented to them here in Australia, then they will go elsewhere in order to get what they need.
0: Do you think that you could yeah. quantify what an Australian style of puppetry looks like or is? Oh, I don't think I can.
1: I would like us to really push the art form. I think that there is, I, I really think we, we are an inspired group of group of individuals even just listening to your other episodes on the podcast i've done my research pete that um, makes me so happy <laughs> yeah you yeah i i find yeah that's oh, you know it's my pleasure there's such great podcasts and i'm very thankful to be here i think i've already said that um Stunt but it. what i what oh <laughs> um but what i what i'm trying to say is that everyone that you've had so far i think really does love the industry and everyone has their own unique way of working that they've found. And I think that is in itself what we as Australians can trust in the puppetry world is that you've got some incredible minds that are working on creating pieces that mean something and whatever their audience is, they're making it for those people. It's an egoless institution that we all all work in. So no matter what comes out, everybody's making the best work they can yeah I think it will be inspired it will be inspired inherently because it's they're they're inspired to make it hopefully hopefully it advances and I'm seeing more and more interesting and diverse little ways of working because we're now more connected than ever especially with what we can see online so it's only a matter we're all sponges as well so everything that happens overseas will 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 be inspired by that and then eventually we'll come up with something that inspires those overseas as well.
0: I really love that answer I love also the addition of the idea that what we might lack in sort of an, a recognisable style of puppetry, we definitely give back in a very particular form of vernacular when it comes to storytelling. I think you can really identify Australian cinema and thus I think you can really identify Australian theatre and particularly Australian puppet theatre and I guess the reason i would mentioning Dead Puppets so much is because I feel like they are at the pinnacle of that kind of storytelling you know those stories are incredible one of them actually most recently that we got to see was dead puppet society team alongside with the artist tim sharp and his amazing mother judy sharp in the revival of the 2016 show laser beak man at the sydney festival and it was so beautiful oh i die they're such fabulous people i love those two and
1: that show was completely made for them. If it wasn't for Tim and his imagination, and if it wasn't for Judy and her love for her son, then that show wouldn't have happened. I was brought in late into the whole development anyway. So it already had a life of its own, thanks to those two and Nick and Dave working together with an incredible team of people from Brisbane Festival. I think La Boite was involved. Every, like There was an incredible number of companies, venues, yeah, collaborators all wanting that piece to work, inclu- including the artists, the puppeteers themselves, and then Ballpark Music making the music, and then the Justin doing all the visuals. There was so much going on that people really wanted it to work for those two for Team yeah. Judy. Um, I, yeah, I came on late. I did play beak Man. In the second, in the remount of it, really, a bit of a tour they created last year. So I fortunately had the, well, the resources, the material to work with, like the show had already been created. So there was a a blueprint there to inhabit. And I did meet Tim in 2016 when the show was first made, because I did see it up in Brisbane. And I remember meeting Tim then and he, he blew me away and his openness and generosity was was inspiring in itself and I could see there was an absolute heart in the piece. And so when I got offered to jump in to play Laserbeak Man, I I, I couldn't say no. Also there was, yeah, his drawings and everything, there was so much content for me to absorb in order to inspire me to fill that character with everything that it needed and deserved. So it was a joy, a lot of fun,
0: a lot of fun. For those of us who don't know, who are our listeners, uh, Tim Sharp is an artist who is living with autism and has been sort of a pioneer of ability and, and, and autism in Australia. And I'd really like to know from you, Drew, what was it like to play his hero? Uh, to play a superhero is the best.
1: I love heroes. I think they make me happy. I love musing on what makes a hero a hero. And Laser Beak Man, his journey in that story is is so Beautiful, like he—he he is a hero. It's thrust upon him, and he's got all his friends. And there's an expectation that he holds. He, his friends are all fighting for the loudest voice, and he himself in this show doesn't speak. So he's a witness a lot of the time, but he—he's given space to have an opinion. Yeah, it was—it's an absolute joy to puppeteer a character that doesn't talk while everyone else around him is talking is an interesting thing, and it's—I suppose it puts the pressure on you to make the gestures and the character readable to the audience because he doesn't have words to do to express himself every other character is saying what they think but he he has to watch and be present he's the character that that takes the audience through the whole journey that was the challenge i think with with laser beakman to make him as engaging as the other characters to to fill that role I think it was an incredibly successful show. I really do. And I think it comes down to the fact that everyone was working together. I mean, like, I fortunately wasn't the only one working on Laser Big Man. I did have a team of people. Like, there were often two or three people working together. Uh, Matt Siri was often working with me on the feet of the puppet. So us two together had such full reign. Making a superhero fly is is an example of like the the joy that you can have with the puppet because you do get a chance to imagine what it would be like to soar through the air. You can't do that as an actor because you plant it on the ground unless you've got a harness on you or a CGI. But with a puppet, you can make it happen and fully believe in it. And if you're there, then the audience is there with you. And yeah, that's where the joy is. With And I mean, you can shoot lasers, right? <laughs> like, like that... Oh. Like all of those things. He's got superpowers. Yeah, I was... uh, He also has like a beautiful journey as well. Like he loses his powers and he's got to earn the trust of all these people back. So the story is, has got a complexity to it as well that as an actor, I enjoy because the character has a full arc that you get to explore as well. All the things, all the emotions, all of the, I don't know, the trials and the errors and all of that are in the text as well. What do you think the moral of the story is? got a really is? kick ass song. <laughs> oh, the moral of the story. Oh yeah, totally. You do you. Everyone's a hero. Yeah, the like what it is to be a hero is totally inside you. Um, Laserbeak Man had it all along, and everybody has something within them that is unique and worth people paying attention to and worth valuing. Mm. Yeah, and that's not just Laserbeak Man's story. Like that's that's everybody's journey in that play. Black Sheep goes through a similar thing where he's completely neglected by all the other characters in the world and he tries to he fights against what it is, like he what it is that makes him unique. He's constantly told that he's he's nobody. But it turns out that he has an extraordinary power, which is being invisible is a good thing. And he can get away with things. He can help save the day by turning invisible. So that's a cool little little superpower
0: that he has. I mean, we all have little superpowers. Yeah, We sure do. So how important do you think a show like Laser Big Man is for inclusivity in Australian arts and culture? Oh, yeah, very important.
1: I mean, the whole show was about inclusivity. It's about celebrating people for who they are. The music and the life and love that is in the whole piece, in the philosophy of it. The one thing that they did really beautifully with the show... And it ties into that philosophy of inclusivity is they made as many performances as possible inclusive to audiences to watch the Auslan interpreted ones. We had relaxed performances where they they soften a lot of the intensive lighting and sound and things like that. The show in itself and how it was presented to audiences was adapted at times to make it inclusive. So it wasn't just about the philosophy behind it in its creation, but how audiences see it. I think that that was that is important. I think most theater is starting to to do that a little bit more. I think there's way more to go. I would love it if every show had Auslan interpreters or you know, we're relaxed performances because I, I don't think in my, in my own world, I would love it for no matter who you are, anyone can watch a show at any time. There shouldn't be a specific performance for uh, certain audience members in order to get... it. Sh- every show should be accessible. Um, but, you know, we're making our way slowly, one show at a time, especially because Tim is such... Uh, and Judy were powerhousing that, that show. It, it couldn't help... But promote the idea of inclusivity because, yeah, it wouldn't happen if they weren't there.
0: Yeah, I cannot tell you how much I agree with that statement. That the industry is slowly moving towards an uh, an year of inclusivity, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about the industry. And you're the One of the only puppeteers I know who is both a commercial actor as well as a puppeteer who not only manages to successfully maintain that duality, but who is managed by a talent agency that respects and fosters both sides of you. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. the relationship between you and your management has been really important to you throughout your career. My prior relationship with talent agencies has been dubious and I think a lot of people can relate, particularly actors and, and young people in the industry. So how has the industry changed when it comes to agencies and how did you come to find that relationship work out with you and Smith & Jones?
1: I, I can't speak for other agencies other than the ones I know, the ones that I have been represented by.
0: Smith & Jones is beautiful.
1: I think it's really important that your relationship with your agent is rich and open. They need to know you, who you are, And you need to know who they are and what they're about. Fortunately for me and David and Tanya at Smith and Jones. Hello. How's it it going, guys? Shout out to to my agents. I really love those two. I think that there is a, a trust between us and an understanding between us and a celebration of who we are. They know who I am and the work that I like to do. They also know the work that I'm probably suited for as well as I could be challenged with as well. I trust them and what they do, I think David also he's got experience with being a puppeteer in the past, so he understands what it's like to be an actor, but also have worked with puppets and so he he gets me in that sense, so it's talking a lot about my agent, but what I'm trying to get to is that your your relationship with your agent is everything as long as they they understand you and why what you want out of this industry then then they will fight for that, and they'll defend you.
0: Yeah. That, but I yeah. think it, you know, it does, it takes one to know one a little bit, you know, with the puppetry yeah. and yeah. the idea that someone can appreciate it from a level of not seeing it. I feel like, yeah. well, I feel like that's when it works, but you know, we both have had experiences mm. where it has gone wrong. And so I guess my yeah. question for yeah. you is, uh, you know, how do you know when it's gone wrong? It's, it's a gut thing. It really is a gut thing,
1: but I, I was without an agent for about a year before I signed with, with Smith and & Jones. And previous to that, I was with another agency that it did fall apart. I think I learned a lot about that, about myself. And what I realized is that they had a very different idea about who I was compared to what I thought I was. And I've really figured out a lot about myself as a as an actor, as a performer, as a human being since graduating from drama school, um, which is when I signed with my original agent. And I think there was probably a conflict there between who I am as a person versus who they wanted me to be. I mean, that's that's a lot to learn especially for young actors in the industry. It's an incredibly intimidating industry and it's a very um, ruthless industry. Often us as performers, a bunch of things can happen. Like, yeah, it's a, I suppose you're in a very vulnerable position as a young actor in the industry. You're listening to a lot of people who know a lot more about it than you do and you want people to like you a lot. At the end of the day, whether or not people like you doesn't matter. What really does matter is whether or not you are happy whether or not you are proud of the work that you make. And unfortunately, with my old agent, a lot of the work that I was proud of wasn't seen in the same light by them. So there are alarm bells that would pop up. But I think where I've come and what I've learned from that is to really trust in who I am as a person, as a performer, as an individual. And having an agent that sees that and trusts in that too
0: and believes in that is an incredibly important and powerful thing to have on your side. How did you find resilience in the industry like when it doesn't you know when it's not working out or when there's audition okay. after audition after audition what do you do to to maintain that resilience and push forward
1: rejection is rejection it doesn't the sting of rejection never goes away i suppose it is that whole idea stubbornness maybe or the idea that when it comes to the art and the craft that you are putting out there if what you put out there is your best work then you cannot ever really be upset with what you've done. That's not fair on yourself. So I suppose if you if you are honest with the work that you create and also honest with yourself about it, like if you've done a bad job, you've done a bad job, but learn from it as well. Like move on, keep going. I suppose you you do just get a thicker skin. When people say no, often the translation is you're just not right for the role rather than you're bad at what you did that can be also another thing like just reframing the the logic around why choices are made in the industry i mean i suppose i've been in the industry for long enough to realize that there are far more factors that go into a person getting a role than just what you present in like what you can bring as an actor you're just one piece of the puzzle a lot of choices are made by people by things out of your control it could even come down to how you sound what you look like. It could be who the other actor is. It could be that they've already asked somebody else to do it, but they're just waiting for them to get back. And so they're just going to cover their bases and audition a bunch of other people just in case this person never accepts their first offer. Like there's a (laughs) whole number of things that go into play with casting and getting jobs. So I suppose when it comes down to rejections, if you take it personally every time, then you're going to be a wreck. And I know a lot of people that do get beaten up by that. I mean, all you can do as a fellow actor is to support them. And I mean, we're all in this together. I hate that phrase. Can I just say? It's really thrown around a lot now that we're in Corona times. But like as much as possible, the, the community of actors needs to support each other. There's no better feeling than when one of my friends gets a role. Like I just want to celebrate them and I'd rather someone I know or someone I love and someone I believe in get the role over me. If I can't have it, then yeah, they can have it. It is a community Mm. and it it can, depending on the person, get competitive, but people genuinely want want to do the best they can. They want to survive.
0: They want to do the best they can. In maintaining that duality as an actor and a puppeteer, I mean, we also spoke about Briefly before the sort of pigeonholing that the industry likes to do to us. And you are someone who on the surface wouldn't strike a casting agent as a and d master, cross-stitching, fitness coach, actor, puppeteer who also writes. There is like with all people so much more that meets the eye. So how is that description for you? huh uh, <laughs> as has <laughs> thank you. You just dropped a lot. I haven't talked about any of those things and you just dropped them all in one one sentence. I love it. Yes, yeah, chap in <laughs> folks. Uh has been <laughs> has being seen for who you are and what you do been a challenge for you?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it is. It, it, I would love it if people knew all that about me. Like, I could have that on a calling card and just, like, hand it to people. Like, this I will make you I a am. badge. Please, please do. I, I would love that. For those of you at home, I am doing this interview in front of a quilt that my mother made. So she taught me how to sew when I was a, a young, little, little, young, young, young kid. So there we go. There's something new about me too. Stereotypes are really helpful. They are. They are really helpful when it comes to understanding, like a general broad view of what, what something could be when it comes to character descriptions or casting. Um, stereotypes are really good for selling an idea. This is what we're looking for. I love to challenge that a little bit. I'm not the typical kind of person to step forward into a into an audition and I mean in Australia we home and away and neighbors there are a lot of stereotypes within those shows not to say they're all stereotypes but there are a lot of that and we do see a lot of beautiful people on screen even in in the states like it's just a, a generally quite a thing to see often I don't know I like to challenge that I like to walk in there and just be who I am because I don't know. If I'm going to do a show, like if I, I haven't had a role on Home and Away, but if I do get a role on Home and Away, sometimes those jobs go for a long time and you want to enjoy the role. You want to have fun. If you're not being true to the performance that you want to give in that room, like you want to to enjoy every moment and often being a weirdo is fun. So I don't know, it's not necessarily being weird for weird sake, but it's just presenting something that is true to who you are. I would rather go in there knowing that I'm, I'm a D&D player and I quilt and I do cross stitch while watching gardening Australia having that as a has like a I don't know something in the back of my mind already sets me apart from the others and allows me to have confidence that when I walk in there I am going to be different to everyone else I'm not going to be a cookie cutter of the norm which means that I can I can just be honest and Deliver
0: on what make you know give a show or give a performance that is unique to me. I mean, cross stitching while w- watching Gardening Australia, my heart is a flutter. But anyway, <laughs> let's move on. So <laughs> <laughs> let's talk more about your writing, which I did just throw in there for fun and, and giggles. Tell yes. us what's in the works. Talk to us about your writing. What's happening? What's in the draft?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a couple of things. A couple of years ago, I wrote a web series that's currently in development for production. We're in the process of yeah doing script developments on that in order to get it up to up to scratch and to do the funding circuit. I'm also working on a, a play which I wrote last year. So that's a a nice a nice little piece that is in development as well. And. Recently, I wrote in 48 Hours with a friend uh, a short film, a horror that we're hopefully going to try and produce later in the year when we hopefully, happily um, have the smallest budget ever on it because it's just a little fun piece for me and my mates to to throw together, have a laugh, get a cabin in the woods, drink a couple of cases of beer and make a horror short about
0: Dungeons and Dragons. So it's just going to be a little riot, that one. I mean, I kind of need to know what these are about now. I'm more like, oh, just tell me more, tell me more. What, it's, what is the web series about? What is the script about? I want to know. What can you give away?
1: <laughs> a lot of the inspiration for what I write is from heroes and superheroes as well as fantasy heroes. The web series is, well, I can give you the name. It's called Part-Time Heroes, and it's about a brother and sister who are... Yeah, they're on a hero's journey trying to figure out what it takes to be a hero, especially when they are really shit at it. So I've written season one and it's got quite a beautiful ending and I'm on the way to writing season two as well. So there's quite a lot in the pipeline with that one. I wrote that one primarily because there's also uh, in the industry, if you aren't getting cast in roles, then write the roles that you want to play. And so why not? write a show where I get to play a wizard who falls in love and gets the dream guy halfway through. And then at the end of the day, he's, him and his sister uh, are tested and tried and they, you know, there are sword fights, magic, you know, why not? Why not have, have a bit of, um, you know, pizzazz and, you know, be just legends on screen. The play that I'm writing is also a a hero's journey of sorts. That one is called The Jilted Curse. It's about three friends who get cursed. But in order to break the curse, they have to um, go on a big quest. And that involves lots of pirates and dragons and magic again. A big storm. There is um, a giant whale and uh, music. What else? There's a lot. Oh, one of the characters gets turned into a dog, which is why it's a puppet show. Because I'm going to have a, a dog, a dog puppet.
0: Yeah, There's two stories there, plus beat Man, plus everything. I feel like there's a bit of a thing happening here with... Homer's Odyssey, The Hero's Journey. How much research and sort of back work have you done in, in sort of understanding The Hero's Journey? Because you've mentioned it a few times now and I'm kind of loving it. Can I get yeah. into the nitty gritty with you about that?
1: Ooh. Um, okay, uh, it's going to surprise you that I've never read the book The Hero's Journey. All of my understanding of The Hero's Journey, I say it, I've done my research online and I went and found the Wikipedia page of the breakdown of The Hero's Journey. Don't tell your students that, that Wikipedia is not a source that you can credit, but I just did. My understanding of here Heroes and all of that come pretty much just from my fascination with the storytelling form. I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. There are so many hero stories in that. And what I do love about the hero's journey is that it is just a broad framework to describe a story. Each individual hero is unique in their own way. So I, that's what I love as well is trying to figure out what makes people heroes, like what differentiates one from another mm. and what what, sets, what really triggers people to give everything they've got. Most of those stories require someone to go through some kind of trial in order to discover who they are. I really find that fascinating on a psychological as well as physical level. It could easily be some block within themselves, a relationship issue. Like I find all of that to be utterly fascinating as a framework. That's where I'm at right now talk to me next year and I might be on some other kind of tangent but at the moment I'm I'm really enjoying what I can discover and learn about people just by looking at what heroes do. Dungeons and Dragons is interesting as well because you're often working with playing this tabletop RPG with four other people five other people and they all have different ideas on what their character wants and so I'm always surprised by what what they throw forward. They in a way are defining their own journeys and I, I find that really interesting all the different nuances that in individuals can have just from their own input to the storyline with Dungeons and Dragons because that is in a way collective storytelling with the framework of a
0: game. I agree with you in that I love the the psychological element to the hero's journey and the the pushing through of that challenge that mental and Mm. physical challenge or just the mental challenge what do you think for you is the ideal hero's journey or the journey that sort of sits with you best? The one that
1: resonates with me the most when it comes to a hero's journey and it really comes down to sacrifice that really pinpoints quite some i don't know why but it always makes my heart turn is when a character gives up something for another character because they've learnt that that is that it's a selfless act often that's out of love yeah because of their love for that other character they will give the world to them. That is often something that really makes me sit back and breathe a little bit and probably take my time to just get my head around because everyone has a different reason to, a different thing to give up or a different reason to, to um, sacrifice, a different trigger, a different thing to learn that can make them want to do that. What I do like about the idea of sacrifice is that it is given, it's not taken. That's a really beautiful quality that I really appreciate in people that I know as well on a personal level for my family and for my friends that's something that I would do for them and I would hope that they would do that for me there's something yeah there's something trusting in that I think that's a, that's one of those big qualities that make me believe that every person has the potential to be a hero <laughs>
0: I cannot wait for these stories. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Drew Wilson. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Drew shortly. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace. And you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Soft Podcast. The One Orange Sock Production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast. We believe that podcasts should be advert free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Hello, darlings. This is Ronnie Burkett, and you're listening to Talking Sock, my favorite puppetry podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Drew Wilson. We've been talking about Monroku puppetry and Drew's work in finding that balance between commercial acting and puppetry. But now, Drew, it's time to talk about how you've sustained yourself throughout your time as a puppeteer. And firstly, let's talk about the survival jobs. You've got yourself with many fingers in many pies. Talk to Mm -hmm. us about what you're doing during COVID-19 and in between gigs to keep yourself afloat.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'm a very busy person. I do like to relax. Don't get me wrong. I do the quilting and I do the cross stitch in front of the television, in front of Gardening Australia. Oddly enough, my personal training stuff has kept me sane, really. It was originally as a backup. Actually, my parents always believed that you need a backup if, well, they told me personally that I need a backup in case acting doesn't work out. My too, parents sorry, said to real. me,
0: it's too real. I'm just like, ah, oh, that conversation.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's a very real conversation that I think all parents from baby boomers, they have a genuine fear that their actors for children are going to end up probably in a dumpster somewhere. So they said to me, when you want to go back and study medicine, not if, it's a when that they will pay for my entrance exam and that really knocked me for six. I was very much aware um, that having something to fall back on was an important thing to them. So doing the personal training and the fitness stuff was a way to, in a way, appease them. But also, I want to do something that I enjoy and I do enjoy fitness and I do enjoy the physical side of um, training and doing all that. So I didn't expect that it would actually ever happen this way all of my acting jobs are gone for the moment and i thought when my parents are talking about having something to fall back on that meant when i give up acting or give up puppetry that was how i saw it in my mind Mm. i didn't ever think of it actually as when when the puppetry gets taken away from you so i'm incredibly thankful now that it's been realized in a different way and it has been there because it's really kept me kept me sane having people to train regularly Kept my head a bit level because it's so easy to downward spiral. This kind of uncertainty hits everyone around you, especially clients, because I don't know for, for a lot of people that I train, physical fitness and the regular attendance to that is a, is a mental health thing for them as well. And so when I've got a group of people who are looking to me to maintain that so that they have some semblance of normality in order to keep going, it really pulled me out of, out of a funk and kept me focused on, on something. This whole Corona thing has really, yeah, I'm quite thankful.
0: I have to ask this question and it's so self-indulgent, but when your parents Mm -hmm. said to you, when you go back to medicine and you said it was like pulling a plug on your certainty, can you talk me through that? Because probably like the cornerstone of what I resent my parents for is that conversation where to go to right. go and find a backup job into teaching. Cause that was what stopped me from auditioning for things like BCA and NIDA and whatnot. Yeah. What not yeah I, I remember
1: that. I remember that moment distinctly. And it was a couple of years after I finished drama school, I hadn't yet booked Warhorse, horse and I'd done a couple of little gigs, but it was me pretty much living in Sydney, check to check, you know, and I get a phone call one night from mum and she, she said, your father wants me to let you know. You know, when, when yeah. you want to study medicine, we will pay for, for the entrance fee. And I laughed it off at the time. I remember laughing and being like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I had one of the most sleepless nights that I've ever had. I was tossing and turning for quite a bit and it really knocked me for six that evening. Anyway, I, I called mom the next day and I said to her, you know, you know what you said last night about studying medicine? I said, I appreciate where that comes from. I know you care. I know you love me and I know all of these things. I need your support as much as possible. I need your support while I while I do this. I wanna do this, I wanna try and make this work. And even if I do go study medicine and go and 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 try that that avenue, I I need you guys to back me right now. And then Mum said you're right, you know, look, I'm never gonna speak for your father ever again. He can call you himself next time. Um oh. <laughs> it was this, this moment when mum mum uh, she apologized. She did. And strangely enough, only a couple of months later, that's when I booked Warhorse. And ever since then, they have been to every single one of my opening nights for every show that I've ever done. Mm. They came to every opening night that I did uh, with Warhorse in each capital city. They flew down to Melbourne to come and see Storm Boy. They flew up to Brisbane to see Storm Boy. Every other show, they've always been there. So I've never had that conversation with them before until that point. Mm. And I think it was a a big milestone for us. I, I love them that they. That they listened to me, and at the same time, that I also was be able to be honest with them, because it was an important conversation to have. There's such a difference between our generations, and without that conversation happening, then yeah, a lot would have been unsaid for a longer, much longer period of time. Yeah, yeah. But it, you know, it was a quite a profound and potent moment. And I know they're probably going to listen to this podcast,
0: and Mum and Dad, I love you very, very much. I I will say that I think that is a moment that I personally only thought that I had with my parents. And actually, you saying that to me, uh, that you've experienced a similar kind of conversation, really, really changes my vision on, on that for me as a performer and an actor. And you handled it a lot more eloquently than I did, is all I can say. So so wow, yeah. um, that is beautiful, and do you think that war horse was sort of vindication from that moment for you and your mum and dad? yeah, yeah, it was, and also for myself i
1: I was talking to mum the other day actually about this, and yeah, I was talking about how we, we have conversations like this all the time. And I was talking about like Warhorse was really the the start of me beginning to trust myself as a performer. I mean, I'd never done puppetry before, but I definitely started to trust myself as a puppeteer as well. So it was the the start of me trusting myself as an artist. Up until that point, I think I was a very green. I think from that point on I I was making a lot of yeah, I was breaking down a lot of barriers that made me better understand myself as a human as, as well as an artist.
0: Talk me through drama school. I want to know what actual drama school looks like, feels like, the experience <laughs> of drama school is because, you know, we see we see popular culture play with this idea of going to drama school. I, I can reference fame, both versions of it. The 2009 one was better. Don't judge me. <laughs> the idea of this performing arts high school or this performing arts college That is all competitive edge and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What is VCA? What is drama school actually like?
1: Yeah, look, it's a lot a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah. You're working with a lot of you've got a group of people that you spend all your time with and all you want to do is just be really, really good actors. The stakes are high as well. You wanna be the best you can be. And at the end of the day, you're in an institution that's connected to a university. So you're gonna get a mark and you're getting graded. And you've got teachers that you want to impress. So there's there's a lot of insecurity going around. There's a lot of ego going around, but there's also a lot of fun. You're playing roles that, oh, I would dream to play again today. I played this I played Paris from the Iliad, and I got to be essentially like a catwalk model on stage. Like it was in this show where everyone there were 10 of us and we were each characters from the Iliad, and we were dressed in the most incredible costumes and we all looked bloody good. And I don't know, you get these moments where you're just like, oh yeah, I did that. I oh, owned that. And you, you, some of the funniest stuff happens in those classes, voice and physical performance stuff. I mean, my physical performance classes, they were all in the Lecoq style of training. So a lot of mask work with that, the buffon, as well as the grotesque, um, going back to neutral mask we did, and all of those things. And the things that you watch your friends do in those rooms was utterly, utterly hilarious. I, yeah, they stick with me for the the things that we did made a fool of ourselves in the confines of this safe space. Some of the the finest comedy moments that I've seen. And they're more more enjoyable as well because we all knew each other so well. That being said, I mean, like, yeah, there was a lot of tension at times. I think there were some qualities within myself, some things that I did during drama school that I'm like, okay, yeah, if I could repeat that, I would definitely not have said that or done that for to that person. Look, that's hindsight, you know, I'm a lot older now and I can look back and say, Fuck, I was a dick at times. But look, yeah, that, that's drama school. It's a little melting pot, a little mixing pot of like
0: tension, but joy and, and youth. God, I love your honesty. I really do. I really appreciate it. Oh, okay. I'm all, I'm all honested out. God, it was good. It's time for our segment called The Geek Out, in which my guests and I okay. mention uh, something that has been getting us through social isolation. My Geek Out this week is a board game. It is called... Bears versus babies. My dear friend Kay Yasugi gave it to me. She sent it down from her house in Sydney to my house in Melbourne. And it was the saddest reason. Why? Because she said to me, she said, I, I don't have anyone in my house to play this with. And I thought, okay. Oh, so I wanted to say to Kay, I love you, Kay, and I wish I could play that game with you. And it's fabulous. And if anyone has seen the, the game, it kind of looks like your boxed version of the Monster Book of Monsters from Harry Potter. It is literally a fairy box. And what you do is you create an arsenal of monsters that are technically bears that you add appendages to in order to attack killer babies in a sort of round robin of crazy attacks and as a card game the graphics are fabulous and my housemates and i played it the other day and we had such fun and i would highly recommend everyone go and order it on amazon or whatever that it is it was a kickstarter campaign so dang it love it that for the little guy and uh, yeah drew what's your little what's your geek out for this week I wish that it was as cool as that. Oh,
1: my God. And P.S. I love Kay. Hi, Kay. I think you're <laughs> amazing. My geek out. I've got so many. I actually started playing, going back to the old school PC video games the other day, and I started playing Diablo 3. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. <laughs> What's like, it like it, going it, back? Oh, it's so good. And I think, I think what I love about it is that it is, this, the premise is so simple, but when you're just killing things, but they're evil. You're killing evil things, lots of evil demons, possessed ghosts, all these things. But everything that you're killing is evil. And not only that, but it is like utterly gruesome. So it's so satisfying, but it it just satisfies all the 12 year old me that just loved playing that game when I was younger. And the simplicity of just slaughtering demons at this point in time in the world makes more sense to me than what's going on in the greater scheme of things. So <laughs> I think that's a, a very bleak view on the world. For a solid week, it just made me happy.
0: Yeah. And I do feel like there's a part of us, maybe you and in, myself included in this that has regressed somewhat during COVID isolation. When you're left to your lonesome thoughts, you just I went I went full teenage crazy. I don't know about you, yeah. but yeah. You learn of course, about us, you, go yourself. To, you go
1: to um, you go to that comfortable place, which is nostalgia. It's, a, it's an easy place to access. And it, it's like, you know, grandma's hug. It's, it's a like, reminder of the good old days. Oh, I love
0: that. It's like grandma's hug. Oh, Drew, what else is there in the world of puppetry and performing arts that you want to get your hands on?
1: Well, I mean, there are shows that I'm not doing right now that I want to be doing because of, of COVID. But yeah, those ones which are being postponed to next year, so yes. No, what I really want to do, I just watched The Mandalorian, the entire series, and I want to... but I heard that they're doing season two. So my dream job would actually be to work on The Mandalorian season two or to work on any of those. There's a lot more shows being made that use puppetry, so I want to be on
0: those. They sound fun. They're cool. God, yeah. see you there. Yeah. <laughs> what I've learned from you during the ever brief interactions that you and I have had is that you're a really good storyteller and what's a story that you would love to tell if you had the resources or the time oh I love Shakespeare but
1: I'm sick of seeing Shakespeare and thank you yeah because the only time I've ever seen Shakespeare that I really really enjoy is um, when I see it in England actually there's something something about it at the Globe Theatre. I think they just do absolutely superbly. It's often bare bones. I would like to make an entirely puppet version of Midsummer Night's Dream. I think there is a potential yeah. for an incredible amount of magic to come to life from that. I don't yeah. know what that is, though. I think there, there's a version where it's quite, quite simple, actually, but reinventing our way of interpreting Shakespearean text without it undermining the power of it. There's a purity in Shakespearean text that I think is so potent and so valuable. And there's also a purity in puppetry that is so tangible when it's achieved on stage and it's so visceral. And to unite those two together, I think, would be an incredible challenge, but worth trying if it can work.
0: Yeah, I've definitely seen a version of Romeo and Juliet done with puppets. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I think that for that story, it didn't take the form of puppetry and let it go with the Shakespeare text. Whereas I think with Midsummer Night's Dream, you would absolutely have, by virtue of the fact that you have fairies and absurd Mm. magic potions to work with, and goat's heads on men and things like that. Like, Mm. it would just works so beautifully. Oh, yeah. I'll just say that as well. And I think there is such access to that kind of stuff in Europe. I know that Shakespeare is happening a lot in Europe in puppetry, yeah. um, but you're right about theatre in terms of the UK does Shakespeare damn well. They've, they've gotten good at mm. it. They've really honed that craft. I think the best Shakespeare I've ever seen was Christopher Eccleston did Macbeth mm-hmm. at the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. I think it was at the Stratford-upon-Avon mm. at that really big theatre. Yes. I'll admit to you that for me, as a performer... I met you and in my head, I was backstage at um, Storm Boy and I was like, right, how do I become that guy in five years? And my assumption, a lot like talent agencies assumptions, is that this has been an easy road for you in puppetry. And looking back, the journey started after you had already done a science degree and traveled overseas. So I have to ask you the question, what have you learned On the journey so far, and is there anything you would share as advice to other young and mid-career puppeteers wanting to do what you do?
1: Well, first, um, thank you. Um, uh, (laughs) I uh, what have I learned? Trust. Yeah, I think you are enough. People are enough. The journey of becoming an artist or a, a puppeteer or an actor, you can't do it alone, and. You need the support of as many people as possible. You need to foster that support too. So as much as you need them, they also need you. Kindness and, and loyalty and rigor are really important things to share with people. I suppose like I just enjoy doing what I do as much as possible and give myself space to do that. The may, one of the main things that I learned is to trust myself, to trust who I am as a person. Once I did that, then I started enjoying the work more and seeing myself within the work and as a result, was able to be proud of it.
0: How do you inject your sense of self and that ownership into your performances, characters or stories? How do you think we can elicit that better?
1: That is a really hard question. I, oh, how do I inject myself in? I mean, I'm already there. I think that's it. It's like just not not getting in the way. Already, I mean, my hands are on the puppet and the writing is my own brain on the page. So if I second guess my choices, then that's
0: how I remove myself from the work. Okay, Drew. Okay, here's your chance. If you had a chance to say thank you to someone, your hero in puppetry or in your career so far, who would it be and why? I'll settle in for this one. (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Who are my heroes in puppetry? yeah okay my really really wanky answer is my, my heroes are actually the people that that are doing it that are actually playing with the puppets everyone it's a really difficult thing to let go of ego and work on a piece of work as an artist I think that's an incredibly profound thing. And my hat goes off to anybody that is willing to work long hours in the industry in order to build a show. So yeah, it's pretty much everyone because I don't... hmm, I can't attribute anything to any one person. (laughs) Like I'm such a... I haven't had the chance to work with mentors, although everyone I work with I see as a mentor. So the heroic idea of my heroes are the people... That I work with, everyone. That's I'm not being very eloquent with my answer, am I? Especially because I love the hero's story. Like, I love heroes. And I think one of my big things is that I believe everybody has the potential to be one. So, yeah, it comes down to
0: everybody, which is such a wanky answer. Hey. Are you doing that thing again where you jump up and down with all that energy of just going, oh, I don't know what the answer is. How dare you ask me this question? Oh, I, think that's,
1: I think that's the beauty of it is that there is no answer to this question because I, I, I do admire the work that everybody puts in. I admire the efforts that people do. So Tim and Judy were were my heroes in laser Beak Man, those two in particular, but then everybody else in that team, they all banded together. And yeah, there were really tough times that we had in, that, in those seasons, but everyone managed to step up and prove themselves in that show. So I feel like there's it's more than just one individual that has made an impact on my life. I feel like everybody else that I work with they 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 have an impact too.
0: Ah, Drew. I have genuinely, I don't think I've enjoyed an interview more. So thank you for being on the show today. We are out of time. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, You can find Drew on Instagram at Drew Drew Wilson with an underscore in between Drew and Wilson. Drew is commercially represented by Smith & Jones Management and is on Showcast. Thank you for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I have been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we will talk sock again soon. See ya. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at OneOrangeSockProductions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout out on our socials. Head to our website at oneourownsock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.